Well, last week I preached from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And one of the reasons why I did that was because I really wanted to preach 12 through 21. And that was one of the things I, I, I wanted to do. I want to preach 12 through 21. But going through 12 through 21, you realize you can't actually preach 12. You can, but it's really helpful to preach 12 through 21 if you first preach 1 through 11. Because Paul is setting you up. He's setting you up to talk about what is the, the goal of life. And this is what we asked last week. You know, Paul's writing this letter probably on house arrest in, in, in Rome. And so he's lost his freedom. He's waiting for trial. The verdict is waiting for the verdict. What's going to be happening? And either it comes back, he's guilty, and he's going to, he's going to die. He'll be executed. Or he's going to be seen innocent, and he'll be set free. That's the two things that are waiting for him. And so in this, he writes a letter to the churches in Philippi and says to them to a couple of things. One, he wants to say thank you to them because they gave him a gift, a financial gift. And he's saying thank you for the financial gift. And also he's trying to encourage them. How do you encourage people that are suffering? Because when people suffer, it's difficult because they think to themselves, where is God in all of this? Has God abandoned me? Has God left me? Is God displeased with me? And one of the things that he's saying, he goes, no, none of that is true. And I want to encourage you in your suffering. And so last week I, I, I raised the question of what is the goal of life? It's a huge question. It's a question that many people have wrestled with for a very long time and will continue to do so. But what is the goal of life? Now, you may think, oh, the goal of this year, okay, that's good. I've got some goals I'd like to see in the next six months. That's great. Next year, people say, have your five-year plan. Okay, fine. But what's the goal of your life? Because if you know what the goal of your life is, then you'll kind of know, am I on track? Because I was kind of praying, am I on track? Am I off the track? Or are there even tracks? And a lot of times when I talk with people, I go, what's the goal of life? What are you, what are you moving towards? It's like this basic yet profound question. And sometimes it's like, I don't, I don't know. I want a better job. Okay. Why? I want more money in my account. Okay, but why? I want to get married. Okay, but, but why? I want to have kids. Yeah, but why? Like, what, are, what are we moving towards? Because, you know, maybe the, the, sometimes I think what happens is we buy into the idea that, that the goal is the American dream, right? But even when you say those words out loud, although that may be with actions, the way you live your life, when you say those words out loud, you go, yes, the goal of my life is the American dream. You go, that sounds empty, because it is. That sounds like superficial and I go yeah because it is to go the goal of your life is to be married with 2.5 kids the house with the white picket fence the dog you know the 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 the, the, the plethora of decisions of, of cable channels to watch I mean that's it or sometimes people say well no the goal of my life is uh financial security that sounds shallow because it is like really, is that the goal of life? And you watch, you even watch sometimes the commercials. They tell you the goal of life is to be financially secure so you can retire one day and just do whatever you want. I guess that's the goal of life is basically a selfish dream. I work really hard so that one day I can do whatever I want and go wherever I want and spend my money however I want. 
That seems shallow because it is. That's what the whole book of Ecclesiastes is about, by the way, which is why people think it's such a downer of a book. Because he goes, what's the purpose of life? What does all this mean? It's meaningless. That's what he says. It's meaningless. He calls it havel. It's like a vapor. It looks like it has substance, but when you try to grab it, it has no substance. It looks like it's something until you go for it and you realize it's nothing. And this is what he says. He goes, so I, I thought maybe the meaning of life was in success. So then I went out and accomplished a lot of things. But then I felt empty. I'm paraphrasing by the way now. He goes, I thought maybe then the goal of life was to have a lot of money. So I went out and got a lot of that. And it was nothing. And he goes, and then I thought maybe the goal of life is just to have a lot of women. And he's like, I got that and it was nothing. Actually, he says, that was a big headache is what he says. <laughs> it's like, it was a big headache. And then he, goes, he kind of ends like, what's the goal of life? Paul, I think last week, as I submitted to you, is one of the things that he says, and we'll see even more so this morning, is he says that the goal of life is to have a more intimate relationship with Jesus. Which is difficult because a lot of times what we think is that that the reason why we have a really good relationship with Jesus is so that he will do things for us. In fact, actually, we're just being honest. The reason why we'd have an intimate relationship with Jesus is so that if we have this really good relationship with Jesus, then he'll provide for us all these great, wonderful things. And really what we find out is that Jesus is not only is he, is he the means to achieve the dream, but he is actually the dream in itself. He's the means and the end. And this is what Paul says. And this is what we see throughout Scripture. And so he goes, so what is this, this goal of life? And, and what Paul is doing is that Paul, to a lot of people, it looks like his life had gone off the tracks. He used to be in Rome. I say he used to be in Jerusalem. He worked at the temple in Jerusalem. He had the education that everybody dreamed of. He had the life growing up that everybody dreamed of. He had the honor. He had the prestige. People respected him. They listened to him. He was a teacher. When they would have a meal, he would sit in honored positions at that table. He had, in that perspective, he had it all. But then he had this interaction with Jesus. He came to know Jesus, a follower of Jesus. And from that perspective, he lost everything. He lost his friends. He lost, well, his city that he lived in. He lost the prestige. He lost his job. And what we saw last week is he says, and I considered all of that other stuff, my education, I considered the prestige, the honor, all garbage. He goes, his ethnicity, he goes, I was, I was, I was the Hebrew of Hebrews, all garbage. In, in relation to knowing Jesus more. And I thought, what's the, we talked last week, what's the pride of your life? When you look back on your life, what are you most proud of? Now, if I were to say, when you look back on your life, what are you most, like, like, ashamed of? You go, I got a long list of that. But what are you most proud of? And what would need to happen in your relationship with Jesus for you to look back on that and you go, in relationship to my my relationship with Christ, that's garbage. It's garbage. It's, it's, It's trash. And this is what Paul does. 
So if Paul's life is about living financially secure, it's gone off the tracks. If Paul's life is about retiring in a, in a nice little, in a nice little uh, you know, house in Rome or Jerusalem, living the good life, in that sense, it's gone off the tracks. But he says, basically, if my life is about knowing Jesus more intimately, I've known him more intimately now that I've suffered for him than I knew him before, and I'm closer to the station than I was before. So others would say, Paul, your, your, your life has gone off the tracks. And Paul's saying, actually, no. Not only my life not gone off the tracks, my, my, my life is closer to the station than it was before. Because my, my, my goal is to have a more intimate relationship with Jesus. And even in my sufferings, I've been driven more to that relationship. He goes, and so it's a success. That's where we left him. He goes, I just want to know, I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know his sufferings by any means possible that I may attain the resurrection of the dead is what he says. So we pick up there this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to chapter 3, verse 12. He says this, Not that I have already obtained this. He said that I may know him more, that I may know him and, and the power of his resurrection. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And so he's saying, I haven't achieved this full intimacy and knowledge of Jesus. He goes, I'm not perfect. I'm still on this, this journey. I'm still growing. I'm still learning. I haven't reached the goal. There's a goal out there and I haven't reached it yet. Now, I'd be okay if this was Paul in year one of his walk. You know, he's like, yeah, I've been walking with Jesus for a while. Like a, a whole year now. And uh, I, I have not achieved those things. I go, what about, what about Paul in year four? You know, I've been walking with Paul for four whole years. Like, I've got a college degree in walking with Jesus. But he says these things, I haven't reached it. I might be comfortable with that. Maybe even 10 or 15 years. But from what we understand, this letter is probably written about 25 to 30 years into Paul's journey with Jesus. 25 to 30 years into this journey. What does Paul say? I haven't got it yet. I'm still on this path. I'm still on this journey. I go, you, Paul? Paul, if you haven't arrived yet, I don't have a shot. I mean, God has used him to plant churches. God has used him to not only preach and teach, but God has used him and is using him to write two-thirds of the books of the New Testament. And what does Paul tell us? Yeah, I'm, I'm not there. I'm not there. I'm, I'm not perfect. It's interesting because a lot of times... I hear Christians talk about this idea of arriving. Oh, I haven't, man, when, when am I going to arrive? When will, I, when will I not struggle with these things anymore? When will I be just like Christ and not wrestle with this stuff anymore? I go, well, it's going to be a while. And from what Paul seems to think is that it's going to happen when you die. This is, can be discouraging at one level, right? You mean I'll never achieve it? Not this side of heaven you won't. You'll always be a project. 
You'll always be learning and growing. And just when you think you like you learn and you grow, you're like, I'm learning, I'm growing, and I'm good, I'm good. God's like, nope, nope, now we're going to work on this. And that's been my journey. It's really interesting. Like, I'll, you know, God will work on with me some things and change me and challenge me. And I'll think, okay, God, I think I got it. Now I'm good. And then God will come along and say, now I'd like to talk to you about this. I go, this? God, that's never been a problem. Like, you've never said anything about this before. This has never been a problem. God's like, oh, no, it was always a problem. I'm just waiting now to deal with it with you. In other words, you had bigger fish to fry. We have now fried those fish. Now we've got other things we're going to work on. Why? Because you're continually a project. I'm a project. I'm a fellow journeyman with you. I haven't arrived. You haven't arrived. Paul hasn't arrived. This is what he says. I have not achieved these things. Now here's the interesting thing because Paul says I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect and so I strive, I, I, I push forward. And what's interesting is I hear often the words most often spoke, spoken, I'm not perfect, as though not for to push one forward but to, to sort of justify spiritual apathy. Now I'm not perfect. Now I'm not perfect. As a way of saying that justifies where I'm at. And Paul says, not because he's a perfectionist, but because he knows there's something else, other and something greater. Is he says, actually, I, I take that, that non-perfection and what it does is it draws me forward. It pulls me forward. And this is what he says. I take hold of that. I, make, I press it on to make own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. In the Greek, this is a play on words. It's like another word of saying is that I lay hold of the thing that has laid hold of me. I grab on to that which is grabbed on to me. In other words, I'm responding to the grabbing. I'm responding to that which holds me. I think about when I was preparing the sermon, I thought about someone who's drowning. And the lifeguard sees it. The lifeguard jumps in to save the life, swims up to the person, grabs them. And if the person is conscious, then they, they, grab, they grab onto the, the lifeguard. And so basically, like, just help, that, that helps the lifeguard. It helps the lifeguard even to pull the person in. But the person cannot be saved unless the lifeguard jumps in. This idea that the, the, the person drowning has nothing to hold on to unless the lifeguard does something. And this is what Paul is saying. I've got somebody to hold on to because he's held on to me first. People talk about reaching out to God. I just want to try to reach out to God. I go, well, you can't, you can't reach out to God who hasn't first reached out to you. You're not the initiator of your relationship with God. I don't know you think that you are. You're not. I'm not. Paul says, that, Paul says that he's not. I lay hold of the thing that first lay held on to me. I grabbed on to Jesus. You know why? Because he grabbed me first. I hold on to Jesus. You know why? Because he held on to me first. And all that I'm doing is responding to that. He goes, I'm not perfect. I move forward. And so I hold on to Jesus. Verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Once again, he's not perfect. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. There's one thing that I do. And when Paul says, there's one thing that I do, I'm like, I'm listening, Paul. 
God's used you in great ways. And Paul goes, there's one thing that I do. I forget about what's behind me and I move forward, strain forward to what lies ahead. My future does not lie in my past, right? Now, the problem with this verse is this verse is often mis- mis- misused and misunderstood. And often as I've, I've heard this, this preached before is they say, you know what you need to do is you need to forget about the past and move forward in the future. But unfortunately, a lot of times it's in the context of you've made some really bad mistakes in your past. You have a lot of regret. There's things that you've done that you're ashamed of. You've asked for forgiveness and God has granted you that forgiveness. And what you need to do now is forget about what's behind you and move forward to what lies ahead. Now hear me on this. I think that that's actually true. I think that that if you ask, I know it's true, that, that if you ask Jesus for forgiveness of past sins and past regrets, that he will forgive you and redeem those things, take those things that were, that were breaking you and use those and heal you for the future. I believe that those things are true. However, I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. When he's talking about forgetting the past, what is, what is he talking about? What past has he just laid out for us? Did he say in 1 through 11, so, so I was, I mean, I made these huge sins and I have these huge regrets and man, I'm such a, such, a, such a broken person that I never thought God could ever use me. I was ashamed and broken and then I met Jesus. He healed me and I don't look at the past anymore. I just look at the future. Is that what he just said? No. What did he just got done talking? What did he just get done talking about? He took out all these advantages that he had had before. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, trained in the best schools, had the best education. I had what everybody thought was the good life. Great feast. Great I'm now filling some blanks, by the way, but great feast, great honor, a great job. People respected me. I consider that now garbage and I don't look in the past anymore. I strain forward to what lies ahead. In other words, to put it into our terms probably, Paul says, I refuse to look at the past and think to myself, those were the good old days. Weren't those days good? Weren't those days nice? If I could just go back to those days. It was so less, so less stressful. Things were nice. I had a full belly. I was warm. I had freedom. had a good job. Paul says, I refuse to go back to those days and think to myself, those are the good old days. You know you can get stuck in the past with regret, right? You look at it in your past and you keep reliving the mistakes over and over again. And that will trap you in the past. So you can get actually trapped in the past by regret. But there's another way to get trapped in the past. And that's to get trapped in the past by with nostalgia. Regret and nostalgia are two ways that will trap us in the past. Oh man, if I could just get back. I talk with people all the time. If I could just get back. If I could just go back before this. If I could just go back at this moment. If I could just go back. Things were so much simpler then. My response is kind of like, okay, let's go back. Oh, you, you can't, can you? I can't either. And so let's not nostalgia trap us. 
Paul says, I refuse to think as if my good old days are behind us. And this is actually part of the thing about, about what's the goal of life. The two are tied together, by the way. Because your goal of life will interpret how the good, the good old days really were. And so if like your, for instance, if your, if your goal of life is to look good on the beach in a bathing suit, well, maybe those days have passed, right? <laughs> those days may not be getting any better. Maybe your best bathing suit days are behind you. Maybe if... If what it is is you go, man, for me, it's, it's, a, it's a physical thing. You go, well, you're not getting any stronger, maybe. Maybe you, for it's, it's success, and you feel like you were most successful. You were more successful 10 years ago. You think, man, my, my best days are behind me. I had more disposable income 10 years ago. My best days are behind me. There's a connection to what you think the goal of life is and if your best days are behind you. And Paul says they're not. It's an interesting thing. When we look back on our life with regret and mistakes, we're afraid that we'll return to those same regrets and mistakes. But when we look back on our life with nostalgia, we're afraid that we will never return to those days. We're afraid that the good old days are behind us. And Paul says, they're not. I refuse to look back and think of them. His, his stomach may have been full, he may have been warm, right? But his, his soul was, was cold and his soul was empty. He goes on, verse 14. I press on toward the goal. Here it is. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold to what we have attained. And so he says, so what is the goal? What is the goal? He says, it's the upward call. It's the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's not achievements. It's not accomplishments. It's not education. It's not just becoming smarter. It's not just getting a better job. He says the ultimate call is the upward call of Christ Jesus. That's what it is. And that's why he can say that his life is still on the tracks. He can say, I've lost it all. I lost the job. I lost the, he's still smart, but he lost the prestige of the education, his position, his home. He lost it all. He goes, but I know Jesus more. I'm closer to him now than I was before. And so because of that, my life is still on the tracks. The scriptures tell us that God can use everything in your life, everything, even when people are trying to hurt you and harm you. He can use that to draw you and to drive you closer to him. I once asked somebody the question, I think, so what then could derail the Christian life in theory? What could derail the Christian life? If God can use everything to draw us into a more intimate relationship with him, what can derail the Christian life? The answer was nothing. Nothing. Because God can use it all to bring us into a more intimate relationship with him. And Paul says, this is the goal. And I love what Paul says. This is the goal. This is the goal. And let those of us who are mature think this way. And if you don't, God will reveal it to you. 
I love that. Paul gets to do that, by the way. You don't get to do that. Paul gets to say, if you don't think like that, well, you're immature. And I'm just going to wait till God reveals that. So Paul gets to do that with us in the letter of Philippians and God's canonized word. You don't get to do that with your spouse because that's a really bad idea. Like if you disagree, well, you disagree with me. That's okay. You're immature. And, uh, and God will correct you and bring you about to this, this mature understanding. It's a bad idea. Verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Anything strike you as odd in that passage? Glaringly obvious? Something that just kind of jolts you? Like, wait a minute, why would he say that? Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. That's unexpected. Keep your eyes on me? Imitating me? I mean, shouldn't Paul, isn't Paul, doesn't Paul love Jesus? Why wouldn't he say in this passage, brothers, join me in imitating Christ? Join me in imitating Jesus. Somebody says. Why doesn't he say, keep your eyes on Jesus? The example that you have in Jesus. Why doesn't he say that? Does he not think that? Well, we would be silly to think that Paul doesn't think that. Of course, Paul thinks that we should keep our eyes on Jesus. He says that in other places. Of course, he thinks that we should keep our eyes focused on the example that we have in Christ. Of course, that, but that's not what he says here. He says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. I think Paul is a beautiful mentor. He has the humility to say, I'm not perfect, but he has the confidence to say, but follow me. I find that all good mentors have the humility to say, you know, I'm not perfect either, but have the confidence to say, but follow me. And at the core of Christianity is this idea of discipleship with two simple words, follow me. It's what Jesus said to the disciples, right? Follow me. It's what Paul says to his disciples, follow me as I follow Jesus. This idea that discipleship is relational. We think that, we live in the information age, that information will transform us. Information is helpful in transformation, but information does not bring about transformation. Because if that is that was true, we are living in the information age, which would mean we should be the most transformed people in the history of the world, but we're not. Why? Because information doesn't necessarily lead to transformation. But often what does is relation, relationships. And that's why Paul says, not just follow Jesus, but follow me as I follow Jesus. Keep your eyes on those who follow Jesus. It's why later on Paul holds those who are in leadership in, 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 a, in higher standards. He says, because people are looking at you in the church to see if you are going to model for them what it looks like to be like Christ. I think often what happens in Christian leadership is that 
we just go, oh, don't, don't, don't follow me. You follow Jesus. Like, oh, I want to follow your model. No, 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 no. Don't follow my model. Just follow Jesus because it's actually between you and Jesus. And I've heard people say from the other, other side too, that you should follow somebody. They go, no, no, no. All I need is just me and Jesus. Me, Jesus, and his word. Like, yeah, but you should have a mentor. Like, no, no, I, the Holy Spirit's my mentor. Like, of course the Holy Spirit's your mentor. No, Jesus is my mentor. Well, of course that's true. I don't need anybody else. I go, well, that's actually not true either. Paul, who writes the canonized scripture, seems to think that that's not true. He had the Spirit. He had Jesus. And what does he say? Follow me. Imitate me. I'm not perfect, but I have the confidence to say, follow me. He goes on, verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now even tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction. Sorry, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Then they glory in their shame with mindsets on earthly things. And so he says, keep your eyes on those who follow Jesus. Those who model Jesus well. Focus on them. Look at them. Imitate them. Walk after them as they walk after Jesus. And what I don't want you to do is I don't want you to focus on these guys and be aware of them. There are people who walk as enemies of the cross. It's weird though, isn't it? We're always caught off guard. Jesus says it. Jesus says, they hated me, they're going to hate you too. They didn't like me, they're not going to like you either. They rejected me, they're going to reject you too. And then we are always caught off guard when it happens. We go to, we go to Jesus, I go to, I go to him in prayer, I'm like, but God, they don't like me. He goes, Jesus, that's what I told you that was going to happen. But they've rejected me. So I, I, that's exactly what I said. This is why I told you. We're surprised. People come to church. I think, I think our culture is anti-Christian. I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we've been promised. He says there are those who walk in the enemy, as enemies of the cross. But what I love here is Paul says, I'm going to tell you, one, their end is destruction, just so you know. Two, I'm going to tell you how you identify them. This is what he says. Here's how you identify them. First, their God is their belly. Whatever they feel like, they do it. That's what drives them. We live in the middle of a culture right now. If it feels good, do it. If you want it, take it. And everyone thinks, that's a good idea. I mean, people all the time, like, yeah, it was a good idea. My wisdom is I wanted it, and then I went out and I got it, and I did it. And I go, that is not wisdom often in the Bible. That's actually foolishness. Why? Because your God is your belly. What you desire, you do. He says their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. In other words, things they should be ashamed of, now they're lifting up and saying, look at me. You know, when we're ashamed of the things that we should be ashamed of, we're like, we try to hide it, right? And that's not good because we should bring it into the open so we can deal with it. But actually, I think there's something worse. Things that we should be ashamed of, and then we, we parade it around as if these are like, this is things we should be praised for. Paul says, we see it in the book of Judges, something is broken with a culture when it, the things that should be seen as shameful are, are, are paraded around as if these are our moments of pride. Paul says, that's a bad idea. 
And it's actually another way that you can identify those who walk as enemies of the cross. The God is their belly, they glory in their shame, and their minds are set on earthly things. The things of this world, the temporal stuff. And they go, man, those are three great ways to identify those who walk as enemies of the cross. That's probably true in your workplaces. That's probably true in your neighborhoods. That's probably true in the culture. That's true in your families. But here's the problem. Is that not only is this a way to identify the ways that people walk as an enemy of the cross out there, it's also a way to identify the ways in which I walk as an enemy of the cross in here. My God is my belly, right? To glory in my shame and to set my mind on the earthly things. What about you? Is your God your belly? Have you been glorying in your shame? Have you been focusing on earthly things? And here's the problem. We can probably check more of those boxes than we want to. He says those are the ones that walk as enemies of the cross. And don't do that. Then he goes on, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior. The Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And Paul says our citizenship is somewhere else. The reason why you focus in on heaven is because that's where you belong. You don't belong here. There's a song by, by Switchfoot that I, I just, I love. And this is this idea that I just, I felt so awkward, so, so left out, so weird until I realized I don't, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. I don't, I don't run in this crowd. This is not me. I, I belong somewhere else. One time I was in Santa Rosa and I, I ate at this, I was invited to this really, really nice meal. Really nice, nice meal. And I don't go to those meals a lot. Like, not like this. Like, really expensive meals. I don't go to those a lot. But the people that were there went to them a lot. And I felt lost most of the time. I'm like, I don't know which fork to use. <laughs> I've got multiple forks. Which one do I use? But I felt lost, and I thought, I don't, I don't belong here. But Paul says, we don't belong here. You don't belong here. The reason why you feel out of place is because you don't belong here. Your citizenship is somewhere else. Uh, we see it in Colossians. Colossians 1 tells us is that our citizenship has been transferred from the, the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the sun. We belong somewhere else. And what Paul says is now we are in between. This idea that we are where we are headed is an absolute, eternal, unbroken, perfect, beautiful, restored, redeemed relationship with Jesus. That's where we're headed. Where you came from, like this Genesis 3, right? Genesis 3, the fall. Genesis 1 and 2, what we see is Adam and Eve 
in perfection, walking in this intimate relationship with God, then because of sin it's been broken, but then we see in the end it's restored. And Paul says you're somewhere in between now. The goal of your life is that you're somewhere here, but you're moving here. And you need to know that. That your identity doesn't lie in your past. No matter how great your past is, nostalgia, or how bad your past is or was, regret, your, your, your identity doesn't lie in your past. Your identity lies in your future, your destination in your future, where you're going in your future. Your citizenship is based on your future. The place that you're headed And what Paul says is that your best days are not behind you. Your best days are in front of you. And you may not believe that. It may not feel like that today, right? You may have come here thinking, if I could just go back, will I ever return to that place? If I could just go back. And Paul says, "Your, your best days are not behind you. And if you think that they are, it's a lie. Your best days lay in front of you. And I'm not talking about retirement. I'm not talking about that new house. I'm not talking about that, that, that promise that maybe God gave you that it finally gets realized. It's not what he said. Your best days are ahead of you. He says there is this intimate, unbroken relationship that is on its way that will last eternally and is before you and is better than anything you've ever seen and experienced. And it's on its way. And its certainty is not based on your ability to grab onto Jesus, but by Jesus' ability to grab onto you. By the way, you know how he starts Philippians 1? He says in Philippians 1, 6, he goes, I am sure of this. So here he says, I do this one thing. Forget what's behind, lay, lay forward to what's going what's to come. 1, 6, he goes, I'm sure of this. So I know and I'm sure. I'm sure of this. I'm certain of this. He says that he, referring to God, he who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Your future in Christ doesn't lay on your ability to hold on to Jesus as much as it lies in the ability of Jesus to hold on to you. And this is why Paul can move forward in, in, in confidence. And so my, my encouragement to you is, one, is don't think that your best days are behind you. They're not. It may be a while before you see the, the good days again, but, it, but they're not behind you. They lay in front of you. But as long as you know that they're defined by this idea that it's an intimate, unbroken, eternal relationship with Jesus. What we see in, in Genesis 1 and 2, walking in the garden without shame, without guilt, restored in a whole healthy relationship. That's the destination. That's where we're going. And that's how we know if and when life is on the tracks. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises to us. We thank you that our future does not lie on our ability to hold on to you, but on your ability to hold on to us. That even as we lay hold of you, it's because you have first laid hold of us. God, I just know in this room that there are those that, that are here, here that do not like the days they are living in. 
whether that's relationally or personally or economically or culturally. And there's been this, this pull of like, can I just go back to the good old days, the good old days? And whatever that, that even means. But that the best days do not lie behind us. Days of selfishness, of brokenness, even prestige and pride in the wrong things. But your promise to us is that our best days are yet to come. And by days you mean eternally, outside of time. Defined not by possessions, defined not by material things or money or accomplishments or education. But the best days to come defined by an eternal, unbroken, whole, healed, always present relationship with you, Jesus. Please give us grace in our journey. Grace in the places we find ourselves. Grace in the growth. Grace as you challenge us and mold us and shape us. Give us grace. Give us grace as we are moving towards the goal of life. We love you. We pray for these things in your name. Amen.